O Lord, open our eyes to your mighty works. Open our ears to your voice. Shine your light on things known of old, that we may learn anew, that those things may not be hidden from sight for our children and our children's children, but may be told to coming generations, that all may know your glorious deeds and the wonderful things you have done. And finally, Lord, may the words of our mouths and the meditations of our hearts be always acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our strength and our redeemer. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, good morning. Since at least the mid-20th century, there have been shifts in ecclesiastical architecture. This was designed to make it more streamlined, more simplified, some might even say more utilitarian. This coincided with reforms in the church, with the goal of making the church more accessible and welcoming to to the world, less set apart, so to speak. The problem is that God's people are called to be set apart from the world and to uphold the transcendental properties of truth, goodness, and beauty. Since roughly 350 AD, through medieval times and up until the beginning of the 20th century, there were volumes of writings done on how to build a proper Christian church. These were followed in the building of St. Philip's. So let's begin with a little bit of history. St. Philip's was founded shortly after the founding of Charlestown. The parish was established in 1680 under the Diocese of London, and the city was modeled after a British town with the church at the center. The first St. Philip's stood where the red mark is. There, whoops, sorry. Go back. Where the red mark is right there. In the center of town on the corner of what are today's Meeting and Broad Streets. It was described in writing as a grand and stately building and was labeled on early maps as the English church. As the colony grew, they quickly outgrew that structure and by 1710, the parish purchased a plot of high ground in the northeast corner of the walled city. And that's located right there. Despite enduring financial setbacks, the Yemisee Indian Wars, threats of invasion by the Spanish, and several destructive hurricanes that destroyed everything they had built thus far, as well as the need to build a road to the site, the second St. Philip's finally opened for worship in 1723. By 1739, as you can see on this map, both the town and the church were flourishing, and St. Philip's is located right there. Because of its original ties to the founding of our nation, the second St. Philip's Church was called the Westminster of the South. It was described by Bishop Robert Smith in 1766 as a building of God, a house not made with human hands, eternal in the heavens. And architect Robert Mills wrote that it has the effect of solemnity and awe to induce the mind to serious contemplation and religious reverence. Bishop Christopher Gadsden later called it our holy and beautiful house, a noble structure, sublime, honorable, 
a great moral monument, monitory, instructive, and inciting in the very midst of our city. But in the early morning hours of Sunday, February 14, 1835, that noble, beautiful church burned to the ground. A fire started north of the market in an area of ill repute, and borne by the winter winds, it spread quickly south through the city. Previously, the graveyards and the land around the church had protected it during fires, but this time, great quantities of sparks borne aloft lit on the upper part of the steeple. As the steeple burned, it created what was described as literally a pillar of fire. When it finally collapsed into the building itself, it was described as the eruption of a volcano. The church was left in ashes, its loss devastating the entire community. Within 24 hours, the St. Philip's Vestry met and put forward a resolution to rebuild a new church upon the same plan and foundation as the old with the addition of a chancel. The resolution passed unanimously and was later adopted by the full congregation with no disagreement. As Robert Smith had described 85 years earlier, how warm was the zeal to promote the honor of God with a church that would be devoted to the prayers, praise, and thanksgiving to him. Within three short years, the new church, which is our current church, was completed. This is now the third St. Philip's Church. During construction, the congregation actually worshipped in a tented tabernacle in the West Cemetery, and they endured a financial depression. Yet through sacrifice and persistence, they built the magnificent church in which we now worship. That church opened for worship in 1838. Despite an effort by the city to force the building of the new church further back on the site in order to straighten Church Street, the new church was constructed on the same site, and like its predecessor, it acted as the terminus of the vista up or down Church Street. The second St. Philip's Church, like the third, had been intentionally designed to jut out into the street and the street was deliberately laid out to go around the church. Anyone traveling straight on Church Street, going north or south, has to enter the doors of the church. Encountering God will be the final destination for all souls when they leave this earthly life. But if they wish to avoid him until then, they must actually detour around his presence. <laughs> The structure and placement of St. Philip's Church deliberately makes God very difficult to ignore. Its eye-stopping presence invites all who travel the street to enter in, to enter its sanctuary and to enter into a relationship with Jesus Christ, the living God. Its architecture echoes the words of the Apostle Philip to his friend Nathaniel, come and see. The building is laid out in the shape of a cross and is sited on an east-west axis. The altar is located in the chancel, which is the rounded eastern end of the church. East is the direction of the rising sun, which marks the dawning of new life, a new birth found through faith in Jesus Christ. 
It is the direction of the hope of a return to the place where man first enjoyed intimacy with God. As Genesis says, and the Lord planted, the Lord God planted a garden in Eden, in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. East is also where Christ will return from in glory. It will happen suddenly and be visible to all the world. So Christians look east in expectation. Jesus said, for as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Our magnificent steeple is supported by a four-sided base that represents the four gospels and the call to spread the good news of the gospels to the four corners of the world. Starting at the base of the steeple and going up, as you'll see in a minute, are oculus windows. You can see one right there. Oculus windows represent the eye of God. These act as the first of several memento mori, which literally means to remember death. These are reminders that we will all face death and the urgency for us to be prepared. Paul understood that life now and, or in the hereafter could change in the blink of an eye for all eternity. He wrote to the Corinthians, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. The spire is eight-sided and dominates the skyline. Eight is the number that signifies eternity, a new order, a new creation found in Jesus Christ. We often speak of the eighth day and the octave of Easter, which begins on Palm Sunday and ends eight days later with the resurrection. The number eight surpasses the number seven which is the number of holiness and completeness. Eight overcomes the weekly cycle of chronological time and represents God's eternal fulfillment of all of time itself. He who was before all things and will be at the end of all things. In the steeple are, a clock, are clocks and bells, and these also serve as memento mori. They are reminders of the passage of our earthly time, and they pose the question repeatedly of what are we doing with our hours and our days, this time that we have been given. As the psalmist says, teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. Both literally and symbolically, from its earliest days when most travel was done by sea, St. Philip served as a signal, a beacon to the world directing ships and the souls they carried safely into port. And you can see here the mouth of the harbor. There's actually a ship coming in there past Fort Sumter. And St. Philip's steeple is visible all the way out to sea. Maps and charts from the early 1700s all the way forward guided ships through Charleston Harbor's South Channel, which was often labeled the St. Philip's Range or the St. Philip's Reach or occasionally the old church channel. Lining sights up on the church brought souls into safe harbor. Jesus called Christians to be the light of the world, 
And in the late 1800s and the early 1900s, the federal government actually paid the church to allow it to place a light in the steeple, thereby turning the church into a lighthouse, one of the only lighthouse churches to have ever existed in America. When the sunlight hits the spire right, even today, it still beckons travelers from afar, whether by land or by sea. And St. Philip's Spire still dominates the city skyline for all who approach by sea. A trinity of porticos with doors opening north, south, and west welcome all in as Jesus commanded when he said, go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. Each portico contains four columns the symmetry of the exterior and interior design reflects the orderliness of God's universe. There is a design and plan governing the world. It is not random chaos. There is a creator in control. Four stout Doric columns represent the four gospels shared with the four corners of the world. You'll notice that Doric columns are sturdy and plain. They have no ornamentation. In ancient Greece, Doric columns marked a temple honoring a male deity. At St. Philip's, they do the same. They announce a church built for the glory of the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who was King of kings and Lord of lords, a revealer of mysteries, the ancient of days. Two exterior windows, which you can see sort of behind the columns there, flank the great western door. The western door itself represents Jesus Christ, and the two windows represent his dual nature, both fully man and fully God. The two western doors are covered by an arched window. The two doors also represent Christ's dual nature, and the arched window above unites them together in one being. The massive western doors are reminiscent of the temple doors in Solomon's temple in Jerusalem, as described in the Book of Kings, where it says, two doors of cypress wood. The two leaves of the one door were folding, and the two leaves of the other door were folding. And as you walk into church, notice how the doors fold. The same dual nature, united together under the arch, is found in all of the windows and doors of the church indicating that Jesus Christ surrounds the whole structure. As we approach, the size and majesty of St. Philip's draws our eyes heavenward, beginning to shift our perspective from the world. Come, let us pass through the gates and enter in. From the narthex, notice the secular world is still visible, but here we begin the transition to the life of the spirit. As we enter its doors, our souls shift from an earthly focus to eternal contemplation. As we leave the world behind and turn to look within, our eyes are deliberately drawn forward through the interior doors up the long aisle to the cross on the high altar, the crux of our Christian faith. The fullness of the design of the church is based on what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7 when he said, enter by the narrow gate, 
For the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. As we travel the wide streets of the world, the church, as we've seen, plants herself in our path, drawing our eyes in contemplation heavenward, and her gates and doors welcome us in. As we leave behind the wide streets of the world, we enter first through the larger doors, and then, if we choose, we step through the smaller or narrow doors, the narrow gate. Looking forward, our eyes then fix upon the cross of Christ, where our salvation lies. As we turn forward, we notice that the paving stones at our feet alternate between light and dark. These represent the light and darkness found within each human heart. St. Augustine was the one who said that the line between good and evil runs straight through every human heart. Notice the paving stones are laid on the diagonal. They point inward and forward, drawing us forward to God's salvation that will be found at the foot of the cross. Once we decide to enter through the narrow gate or door and begin our journey to the foot of the cross, we find that even the pew doors are deliberately closed so that we may not wander astray off the path of righteousness upon which the Good Shepherd is directing our feet. Jesus said, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. Some translations use the word gate instead of door. He later said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. The small door or the narrow gate is the path that every pilgrim must walk. All who would be saved must enter through the narrow door, whether it's lay people, choir members, acolytes, even clergy, and bishops and archbishops. All must travel the same narrow way. Passing through the narrow doors, we enter what's called the nave. Throughout history, the church has been associated with a boat or an ark, literally a ship, and its captain is Jesus. It carries souls through the storms and chaos of this world and brings them safely home. The word nave comes from the Latin word novice, which means ship, and it refers to the main body of the church. Looking from above, you'll notice that there is a cruciform design in the interior of the church as well, and this is formed by the main aisle and the cross aisle. In this case, the chancel at the east end functions as the head of the cross, just as Jesus is the head of his church. The sanctuary itself is lined with white Corinthian columns. They are slender, fluted, with ornately decorated capitals. The Roman architect Vitruvius wrote that Corinthian columns were based on the delicacy, adornment, and proportions of a beautiful, pure maiden. We saw outside that the external Doric columns signified a temple to a male god, Jesus Christ. Now the elegant feminine interior columns represent the church itself, adorned in beauty, prepared as the bride of Christ to be presented to him in splendor 
for the marriage feast of the Lamb. The vaulted ceiling, magnificently ethereal, echoes the barrel vault of heaven, reaching down to join the earth. Ribbed with slender arches connecting the walls and the arched windows below, it exemplifies the mystical union of heaven and earth that is found through Jesus Christ. The majesty and height of the ceiling humbles all who enter under it, reminding us that the Lord is exalted above all the nations, his glory above the heavens. Historically, arches were built by conquerors to commemorate triumphal victory over enemies. By his death and resurrection, Jesus Christ won the ultimate victory. He defeated sin and death. His victory freed all who believe in him from the bondage of sin and the penalty of death. Victorious, he promises eternal life to all who seek forgiveness for their sins and turn unto him. Around the galleries or balconies, a cherub is mounted as the keystone atop each arch between the columns. From the very beginning in Genesis, Cherubim served as guardians of the holy places where the presence of the Lord resided. After Adam and Eve disobeyed God, he drove out the man, and at the east end of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Later in the wilderness, God instructed Moses to build the Ark of the Covenant, saying, And you shall put the mercy seat on the top of the ark, and in the ark you shall put the testimony that I shall give you. There I will meet with you, and from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim that are on the ark of the testimony, I will speak with you. Throughout the Old Testament, the Lord is repeatedly referred to as enthroned upon the cherubim. David described the Lord's salvation, saying, He bowed the heavens and came down. He rode on a cherub and flew. He came swiftly on the wings of the wind. A psalmist later plaintively echoed, Give ear, O shepherd of Israel, you who lead Joseph like a flock, you who are enthroned upon the cherubim. Shine forth, stir up your might, and come to save us. Restore us, O God, let your face shine that we might be saved. So cherubim, or angels, mark the presence of God. And they also, in the New Testament, mark the presence of his son, Jesus Christ. In the New Testament, it was an angel that announced his coming to the Virgin Mary. A host of heavenly angels proclaimed his birth to the shepherds in the fields around Bethlehem. Angels ministered to him after his temptation in the wilderness, and they announced his resurrection from the dead to the women at the tomb. They were present at his ascension into heaven. So as with God the Father, so with God the Son. Angels or cherubim guard his presence. Like the exterior, you'll notice that the interior of the church is orderly and symmetrical, representing the harmony and the complementarity of God's creation. On the side of each cherub, you'll notice that there is a riotously flowering vine sprouting forth from the horn of cornucopia, representing abundance and plenty. And it reminds us that not only is Jesus the bread of life, but he is the one who said, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, 
He it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. Atop and underneath each column, a profusion of acanthus leaves curls forth. Acanthus grows where little else will in the parched desert and rocky ground of the Holy Land. It represents the bounty of new life found in Jesus Christ. Abundant life growing in barren places and stands in stark contrast with the spiritual wasteland that is found in the desert of the secular world. Notice the flower right there at the center. We'll come back to the flowers in just a minute. Other details on the columns and the ceiling include the repeating egg and dart motif. This can be seen right here, and it's also down here. The egg and dart motif represent life and death. The egg represents new life, new birth, and the small dart or arrow symbolizes death. Jesus in scripture repeatedly reminds us that we must die to self so that we may be reborn to new life in him. He said, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. You must be born again. We must deny ourselves. We must take up our cross. We must die to self in order to follow Jesus into new and eternal life. And the egg and dark motif reminds us of this. Additionally, there is also dental molding, which is what's seen here. This molding, like the floor below it, creates a pattern of light and dark, and it reminds us of the fickle nature of our human hearts. As Paul wrote to the Romans, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. The repetition of the dental molding reminds us of our struggle with our own sinful nature. To break this repetitive cycle, we desperately need a savior. Joyfully, our savior is close at hand. Just above the egg and dart, on the uppermost crown of the molding atop each column, you will find a lion, a solitary head of a powerful lion. This is Jesus, the lion of Judah, spoken of since Genesis. From Jacob's son Judah, who has described himself as a lion, came the royal line of David, which culminates in Jesus Christ. Testifying to this, John's revelation says, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered. On the corners of each capital, you'll notice that there are, right here, Four pine cones. For Christians, pine cones symbolize rebirth and new life, especially after a fire. The heat of fire, for anyone who's ever grown pine trees, causes pine cones to open, shedding seeds that then spread widely. These four pine cones on each column were likely the reminders of the fire of 1835 
which helped spread the seeds of new life and the resurrection of St. Philip's Church within three years. They are also reminders of the fire of the Holy Spirit, which breathes new life into us, and the power that the presence of the Holy Spirit brings. The interior of the church contains hundreds of carved flowers. Many of these reflect pomegranate blossoms in various stages of development. The pomegranate appears repeatedly in the Old Testament. In the wilderness tabernacle, God instructed the Israelites to sow pomegranates alongside golden bells, a golden bell and a pomegranate, a golden bell and a pomegranate, around the hem of the robe of the high priest to protect him from death when he goes into the holy place before the Lord. Built centuries later but still honoring God's original instructions, the temple in Jerusalem was described as having 400 pomegranates for, two, for the two lattice works, two rows of pomegranates for each lattice work. And likewise, he made pomegranates in two rows. There were two hundreds of pomegranates in two rows all around. The pomegranate represents God's protection from death to those who believe and worship him, his promise of rebirth and resurrection. The different stages of blossoming of the pomegranate flowers represent the different stages of Christian development. We grow and bear the fruit of the Spirit when we die to ourselves and are born again in Christ. As we follow him and worship him as Lord, we grow and blossom in our faith as we become more like Christ. In addition to protection from death, the pomegranate fruit itself contains over 600 seeds reminding us that Jesus calls his followers to be sowers of the seeds of the word of God. We are called to broadcast across all types of worldly fields and soils to share the word of God with every human heart and to trust that God is the one who will germinate the seeds. As Jesus said, but those that were sown on the good soil are the ones who hear the word and accept it and bear fruit, 30-fold, and sixtyfold and a hundredfold. Moving forward in the church, the eagle is the symbol of St. John the Evangelist who proclaimed Jesus Christ as the Word of God and he wrote in his gospel, in the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God and the Word was God and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father full of grace and truth. The outspread wings of the eagle lift up the word of God, allowing it, when read aloud, to soar forth out into a hurting world. In the Old Testament, the eagle represented strength and salvation. It was associated with the speed and power of God's deliverance. He said, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, how I bore you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. Later, the prophet Isaiah encouraged his listeners to remember their history as the people of God and to have hope in his promises, saying, But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. The pulpit of St. Philip's is eight-sided, just like the steeple, to represent eternity, and it's raised up high to elevate the preaching of the word of God and lift high 
the word of God. When the preacher ascends the steps and climbs into the pulpit, his view is first of his congregation in the pews and then out through the clear glass windows into the churchyard around. There he sees the grave markers of those members of his flock who have departed this life. And those grave markers stand as mute messengers. They serve as a reminder of the urgency of the minister's call to share the good news of the gospel amongst the living. Scripture repeatedly warns that no one knows the day or the hour of the Lord's coming, so we all must stay awake and be prepared. With the exception of the stained glass window above the altar, all the other windows of the church along the walls are clear glass. After the Protestant Reformation and the translation of the Bible into the vernacular languages, clear glass windows came to epitomize the rhetorical clarity with which preachers should aspire in preaching the gospel. Clear windows are designed to allow the light of Christ to stream out into the world and the light of day to shine in to illuminate God's word. The journey through the sanctuary transitions fully from the secular world outside the church to intimate communion with God at the chancel of the church. This transition is architecturally symbolized by the presence of the altar raised on marble steps and the half-domed ceiling exploding in dynamic, vibrant rows of pomegranate, daisy, and rose blossoms. The altar is the place of full communion with God, the place of sacrifice. Its position in the church recalls the Holy of Holies within the temple in Jerusalem. It is literally our connection with heaven. It is only upon reaching the high altar, notice that the marble floor changes completely to white. This symbolizes the purity and innocence of Jesus Christ. Take a look next time you go up for communion. Rocks and stones are a favored building material because of the connection with God in scripture. Our Lord is a sure foundation. He is the rock of our salvation, and Jesus Christ is the cornerstone. The ceiling of the chancel celebrates Christ's defeat of death, his resurrection and rebirth. It represents man's restored relationship with God and the coming of a new heaven and a new earth through Christ's return. Through Christ, we are restored in our relationship with God, which had been broken by our sin. Through his sacrifice and our faith in him, we can move past the cherubim with the flaming sword and re-enter the garden, the place of full communion with God. The garden is a theme repeated in God's salvation story. We were created initially by him to live in the Garden of Eden. Jesus gave himself up for our sins in the Garden of Gethsemane. He was buried and resurrected from the garden tomb, and he is the door or the gate that opens the way for us to the eternal garden of paradise. The dynamic profusion of blossoms high in the head of the church is the great crescendo that symbolizes all of these gardens brought together in unity through Jesus Christ. Flanking the altar are engraved tablets that serve as remembrances or Ebenezer stones 
that recall the faithfulness and provision of God. The Old Testament says, Then Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mizpah and Shin and called its name Ebenezer, for he said, Until now, the Lord has helped us. The stained glass window glorifies the altar, and at the base, it tells the story of Philip answering the call of strangers who came to him and said, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Above the narrative, which comes from John chapter 12, the window details the whole gospel story in, a brilliantly, beautiful, in brilliantly beautiful symbolism, and it adds richly to the meaning of Christ's sacrifice for us. Unfortunately, I don't have time this morning to detail every bit of the window. There's a booklet in the back of the church you can pick up and read if you want to know more, or we can do another class later. But suffice it to say that it magnificently glorifies the high altar and adds to the crescendo of that holy space. As we prepare to leave the church, we are reminded that God is not contained within a building. Even one that was as lovingly and sacrificially created to draw souls to Christ. God is alive in the hearts of men and women. We are meant to be in fellowship with other believers. Together, we are the body of Christ. We are God's holy temple. With them, we praise him, we worship him, and then he sends each of us out into the world. There are seven different doors again, a number of holiness and completeness, by which to leave St. Philip's. Along the north and south sides, a trinity of doors opens into the churchyard. From there, the faithful pass through a northern gate or a southern gate, going out into the world as Isaiah prophesied. Pass through, pass through the gates. Prepare the way for the people. Build up, build up the highway. Remove the stones. Raise a banner for the nations. The Lord has made proclamations to the end of the earth. Say to the daughter of Zion, See, your Savior comes. See, his reward is with him, and his recompense accompanies him. They will be called the holy people, the redeemed of the Lord, and you will be called sought after, the city no longer deserted. Departing the sanctuary by the main aisle leads straight through the great western doors. The western way for us recalls the biblical journey of the faithful who have gone before. Following God's promises, Abraham journeyed west, going from Ur to the land of Canaan. After the exodus, the Israelites crossed over the western bank of the Jordan River into the promised land. Under Ezra, the exiles from Babylon traveled west, returning to Zion to rebuild the house of the Lord. At the birth of Jesus Christ, wise men from the east followed the star in the western sky and came to worship him. Paul journeyed west, spreading the gospel through Asia Minor, Macedonia, and Greece. Both Paul and Peter later ended up in Rome. From there, Christianity spread west across the rest of Europe and later across the sea to this hemisphere. Walking west, 
we walk the way of all the faithful saints who have gone before. And because God has such a great sense of humor, since he made the world round, by walking west as followers of Jesus Christ, we will end our earthly pilgrimage full circle back where man began. Following Jesus, he will lead us back to the east end of the Garden of Eden, the way to the tree of life. Walking the way of beauty, goodness, and truth, we go forth in the knowledge that by raising Jesus up, as he said, he will draw all men to himself. And people will come from east and west and from north and south and recline at table in the kingdom of God. Until finally, as Habakkuk prophesied in the Old Testament, the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. In a world where we live today, where truth is no longer allowed to be objective and everyone has their own truth, and what is good is frequently now called evil, and what is evil is frequently now called good. To paraphrase Alexander Solzhenitsyn, who said, perhaps it was not a slip of the tongue for Dostoevsky to say that beauty will save the world, but perhaps a prophecy. If you are inspired by the beauty of St. Philip's and the meaning of that beauty, Invite someone in. St. Philip himself is a great model. Having met Jesus, he enthusiastically called to his friend Nathaniel, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, come and see. Let us conclude in prayer. Let us pray. How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord God of hosts. We thank you for the richness of our magnificent spiritual inheritance. May we never take it for granted. Help us to always remember, as the psalmist said, that a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. Place in our hearts the desire to be a doorkeeper in your house, inviting others in to discover your salvation. Be our sun and our shield, that we may walk uprightly in your ways all the days of our lives. We ask all of this in your son's precious name, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. <laughs>